I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to The Tennis Podcast in what has been, I think it's fair to say, and this might be a gross understatement, a pretty busy week in the tennis world. We're recording on Sunday evening UK time. There have been four finals today and two semifinals due to rain in Barcelona. Obviously, all four of those finals happened at the same time because... Tennis be tennising. Uh, We've done our best to watch them all and uh, we'll be bringing you up to date uh, with our thoughts and feelings about all of those results in due course. David's here. He's got a wee wee hint of a tan, David. Mm, Yeah, I got sunburnt on day one and this is the uh, the result 10 days later. Mm, It's good to know that some things never change. There's something quite comforting about that, Matt. You and I are the same colour we were the last time we recorded a tennis podcast. Yes, and I'm actually going to somewhere which is a whole 10 degrees colder than where I currently am tomorrow and calling it a holiday. Uh, So who knows what colour I'll be next week. What is this magical destination, Matt? Uh, It is Northumberland. Oh, well-known holiday destination Northumberland. (laughs) Yes, playing golf next week. Looking forward to it, but it is going to be chilly. I'm delighted to say that Pam Shriver is here, folks. Pam, have you ever been to Northumberland? Uh, I may have, but I don't remember. Um, <laughs> but I have been to places 10 degrees colder. But tomorrow I'm actually going on a four-night, five-day retreat to uh, just north of San Francisco. So quite a few of us are departing on trips. I think Matt, you win. You've, you've been out holidayed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pam, we're really chuffed to have you with us. This has been um, a meaty old week for tennis, and that's before we get even get into those four finals that all happened at the same time earlier on today. Um, a lot of issues to cover here. Um, we're going to start with, first and foremost, an issue that you have raised and drawn attention to um, so impressively and so bravely on this podcast and that the tennis world has been responding to over the course of the last few days. Steve Simon responded to it on this podcast. Um, I interviewed him a couple of days ago. If you haven't listened to that show, um, I do recommend you you have a listen because he covers pretty much all of the big topics and is pretty clear about about where the, where the WTA stands on those topics. Pam, 
What have the last few days been like for you? Well, it's certainly really different than any other four days um, for me. It's just been, um, it's actually been very rewarding, uh, the support I received. Um, I think, first off, hello, Billie Jean. I, I got some really nice messages from the original Billie Jean. Uh, it sounds a little more understandable. It's okay. I, my dog's going to start barking too. Um, I was, I've been really um, felt quite supported by my peers that I played the tour with. I felt supported by the WTA tour, my friends, my family, both from decades ago in Baltimore to my current friends where I've been living in here in LA for the last 20, 25 years. I've heard some from some people that I hadn't heard from in literally 35, 40 years. Um, and no regrets. Like I just feel it was the right time. Um, but I will tell you that my education into the whole, uh, subject of sexual abuse, coach athletes crossing boundaries. Um, my education really just began with my podcast that we recorded at Indian Wells now, what, six, seven weeks ago. Pam, has anything about the reactions and the responses that you've had, has anything surprised you? I don't know how set you were in your mind about what to expect after the release of that that show, but has anything surprised you? Well, I kind of learned in my 14 years of a 12-step program to not have tons of expectations, just kind of take it one moment at a time. Um, it, first off, it was a really interesting morning. For me, it was bright and early. It was like 5 a.m. when we were um, we'd already moved our timetable ahead by a day because we knew that Wimbledon was going to have a big announcement regarding Russian and Belarus players. So we thought we'd get ahead of that. And then, you know, when I woke up and saw that there might be another delay and I'm like, no, I, I didn't sleep well. It's time to release the pod that um, had been recorded in Indian Wells back in March. Um, no, no, no real huge surprises. Um, one or two players who I played at the same time, I thought it was interesting they put um, and uh, they put uh, tweets of support open for anyone to read just about, you know, one from Leslie Allen, for an example, who said along the lines, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing that, you know, we all knew uh, this, um, you know, this, she didn't use train wreck of a relationship, but just sort of saying they all stood by in denial and not, nobody did anything. Um, and I just thought that was, um, that was sort of her way of, um not, not really necessarily apologizing, but just saying things were very different back in the in that time. And what I've been really, really uh, positively impacted by is how many parents and how many people of uh, children who enjoy sports, children, teenagers, even young adults who have said thank you, um, that they think that this kind of conversation needs to come out. The storytelling and the precision of the storytelling, as I remembered every step, is really important to understand how it can be. And then to, in today's world, how we can create safer work environments um, for our young people, and in this case, uh, young tennis players. In terms of the next steps, Pam, which I know is is one of the the main, if not the main focus for you, you know, changed, but bringing something positive from all of this. Um, what did you make of what you, you heard from Steve Simon in his interview here a couple of days ago? Well, I think just like when I called Steve Simon privately to give him um, an advance notice of my story, um, he offered me at the time privately his immediate support and anything the tour could do to, to help me, but also 
he knows, uh, he's aware that it's uh, still a problem today. Um, and I think that maybe my story has begun to shake things uh, up a little bit um, harder and maybe things will speed up as far as um, getting some ex experts in um, who can really put down uh, better workplace uh, protocols. Um, because let's face it, what we're dealing with here when we talk about a coach player, it's the same really relationship as like a student teacher. Um, and it's a position of power. And so what I've learned, even since I recorded the podcast with you, Catherine, and I related mostly to the emotional abuse through the years of the relationship and after, really, um, is I recognize now with the help of some experts in the field, it wasn't just emotional abuse, first and foremost, it was sexual abuse based on the fact that he was my coach. We entered into a coaching pupil um, partnership where he was to help me become a better tennis player. And it was through that access that the relationship flipped into something more. And as it works out into 2022 today, more and more um, workplaces look at that kind of crossing over of boundaries as sexual abuse. So I, I really feel that coaches and team members, um, eventually they need to be shaken up the most and be trained on how not to cross over. Because just like teacher-student relationship, the teachers, the coaches, as I said during the podcast, they are the adults in the room. That was something, Pam, that Steve alluded to in, in his conversation with Catherine, is that the WTA do, early on next year, intend to, to revamp this accreditation, this credentialing system for people coming into the sport, for people that are going to be team members, coaches, players, bringing people with them. And he, he made it pretty clear that, that this is something new that doesn't happen right now or hasn't to date. What, what do you know of, of, of what will happen? What do you think needs to happen in that regard? What, what, what sort of training should they be having? Well, first off, I don't know a lot of what is currently happening or being developed. Um, but I do know of some uh, developments in other sports, and I have some friends from other sports, and I'll just mention one, Nancy Hogshead, who was an Olympic gold medal uh, swimmer uh, in the 80s, were the exact, virtually the same age. We have three kids, including twins. We've stayed in touch through the years. She got her law degree after completing her competitive swim career where she was abused as a, a I believe, as a collegiate swimmer by her coach, and she's made it really her life's work to advocate for safer workplaces for young athletes. And she's been brought in by many sports, but she has helped really, in many ways, revolutionize the workplace uh, in elite swimming. And I think that um, experts like Nancy, and maybe not even need to be a big panel, like, like the age eligibility panel, it may literally just need to be a team of like one or two people who've done this before in other sports, but the tennis world has to be open to this. The tournaments and they offer the physical workspace plus their hotels. And we know from the situation with Zverev and the abuse allegations there that the tournament hotel is also seen as a part of the tournament site. And so um, I just think they, they, they can't reinvent. They don't need to reinvent the wheel here. 
I think the wheel actually has been reinvented in a couple of sports. So I'm still early days. Nancy Hogshead had said to me on a phone conversation a couple of days ago, Pammy, I'm going to make you an expert in this, uh, in this field. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to step up and tell my story, that's one of the things I have to be willing is to become more of an expert. And I'm not there yet. Pam, one of the, um, the elements to, to Catherine's conversation with Steve was what sort of possibility is there, facility is there for players, for coaches, for anybody who's concerned about something that they see on tour to report it, to, to, to let somebody know in authority that something doesn't look right to them. Those were, were words you used. That doesn't look right to me. And... I personally didn't feel like I got a, a, a satisfactory enough answer, a clear enough answer to exactly what that meant from Steve as to what was in place. Now, maybe that's because we're outsiders and, and all players and all coaches know what should happen in these situations. Well, over the last um, 48 hours, basically since your interview, I, I, I've been contacted by a leading coach of a leading player who who didn't want to give a name but was happy to tell me that for decades he said he's witnessed behavior that has sickened him both on the ATP and WTA tours he said he would have he would have called an independent number a hundred times to report signals or inappropriate behavior by coaches that he's seen trainers physios mental coaches even gurus he says if he could have done. And he stressed the importance that that phone number needs to be independently looked after to protect the identity of the person who's calling and also to make sure that there are no conflicts of interest um, in terms of vested interests within the sport, which I guess the truth is the WTA has a vested interest in the sport. No matter how much they want to do the right thing for the right reasons, they're not, strictly speaking, independent. They're representing players, they're representing tournaments, they're running a business. And so I then wrote to the WTA um, and asked if there is an independent number or similar currently in operation that players or coaches or anybody concerned on the circuit could use to report behaviour if they are concerned. And this is what I was told. At this point, there is not an independent phone number as we have internal resources and staffing, including phone numbers and various contact information in place for anybody to report a concern, which is highly encouraged. It could be considered, though, um, was what I was told, as we continue to enhance our safeguarding efforts and as conversations continue. Is is that what's needed, ultimately? What, one of the main things that's needed, Pam? Yeah, one of many things that's needed. I think, you know, what you're talking about there is um, really important whistleblowing um, policy, which is that the whistleblower feels totally protected and that they're, uh, alle- that they're, what they're coming forward to will be protected to the utmost. And you, you don't really feel that protection if you're reporting it to the, to the tour. So, um, I, again, I haven't taken the time to understand in other sports what the independent whistleblowing situation is for sexual abuse. But I think what you bring up is one of many things that needs to happen. And, um, of course, you know, what, what the WTA has on their plate in the last few months, I don't, I didn't expect to have all the answers by the time you interviewed C the other day. I thought 
it was great he finally came on your podcast um, that he discussed a wide range of topics. Um, and as usual, he did it in as open and transparent style as he can, given the fact it is a public forum and there are some things as a CEO that he must keep confidential until ready to come forward publicly. On this topic of there being a formal, anonymous way to report abuse that you see, I've been looking at the National Women's Soccer League in the US and that was introduced in 2020, I believe, a a formal way to report abuse that was going on. And following that introduction in 2020, there have been a slew, really, of dismissals of coaches um, because that has led to investigations. Players have come forward and that has really helped. So I, I definitely think that would be um, an important element here. You know, obviously, I think as well what Pam is saying is, it starts with the education, but then in terms of, you know, once we once we actually get onto the tour, that is something which the tour can can implement as well. There, um, that's really fascinating, by the way, all of this is. Um, there was one sort of ideological aspect of it all, Pam, that I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on. I'm just going to. I'm going to diverge for, for a moment. Bear with me here in um, in one of the lockdowns. Um, I think it was the the one uh, just over a year ago. Uh, uh, well, lockdown one, I deep dived on OJ Simpson and jigsaws Lo- and jigsaws. OJ Simpson and dig- jigsaws. Every bit of content about OJ Simpson, YouTube offered it to me, and I gladly accepted. Lockdown two in the UK, I deep dived on Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and that whole episode. Um, and one thing that struck me most about your story Pam was your change in perspective on it with the benefit of hindsight and and therapy and you're you're still changing perspective on it now and uh, the experience of Monica Lewinsky in in that scandal in the 90s is such a fascinating and important case study in that you know as recently as 2014 Monica Lewinsky you know who was willing to go to to jail in defense of this this man that she was infatuated by still wouldn't recognize it as abuse it took the it took the me too scandal for her understanding of consent to evolve to the extent that she she now does see that as that that relationship as abusive she said i now see how problematic it was that the two of us even got to a place where there was a question of consent instead the road that led there was littered with inappropriate abuse of authority station and privilege and there are the, the, one of the deep dives I did on this was with, with, was with a fantastic Slate uh, podcast on the subject, and they talked about the two schools of feminist thought on the issue. Um, and there was one at the time, and that still exists now, called the Libertines, who made the argument that Monica Lewinsky was a consenting adult. Yes, a young one, but an adult who entered into and indeed pursued a relationship with another consenting adult. Was that a bad decision? Yes. But adults, they're allowed to make bad decisions. Um, and the the Libertines objected to Lewinsky being seen as a victim. They said that seeing her as a victim is infantilizing and suggesting that an adult woman doesn't have the agency to make decisions about her sex and romantic life is is anti-feminist in a way. But then, of course, there's the other school of thought, which 
which gets into power dynamics and the significance of those and the inequality of age, of power, of rationality. And that is something that it feels to me like as a world, we're only just beginning to understand. And it feels like you've been on that that journey about your own experience, which is which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm evolving every every day during this week. Um, I did I didn't do a lot between when we recorded the pod in Indian Wells and when the release happened on Wednesday. I really chose to just keep it to within our team. Um, it felt uh, the safest way for me. So, you know, really, maybe in hindsight, I'll say, well, maybe I should have done a little more preparation work. So when I had, you know, I was going to do the tennis.com and the ESPN.com, and I've done some interviews with the BBC, that I would be a little bit more of that expert that Nancy Hogshead would like me to become. But you know what, in cases like this, you just sort of take your comfort level and you evolve in your own time frame. I was also dealing with a lot in my own family, as far as I had some kids that were sick, I had some dealings with my son's type one diabetes. It's like life as a single mom goes on, whether or not I disclose something of, of abuse of nature that occurred over 40 years ago. Um, so there was a lot going on this week, but yes, the layers of the onion continue to be peeled. And I can't tell you where I will end up with this, but I have certainly reclassified my identification as two kinds of abuse. And I think the issue of power dynamics is really cuts to the heart of it when we talk about player-coach relationships as well, doesn't it? I mean, just just thinking about, you know, sports generally, athletes, you know, they're told maybe not to question their coach so much and, and their coach is afforded a level of protection because they're the ones who are maybe seen as the route to success or the reason for success. Um, you've also got the fact that in sport, it's accepted that a coach will touch a player. They will maybe physically move them or show them the movements by touching their body. And Pam, you you referenced student teachers before. That would never be accepted in a classroom or eyebrows would would raise certainly whereas they don't so much in sport and I think sort of changing that mindset might might be something to come from this and also just realizing that yeah you can you can break these boundaries chip away at them and eventually they're crossed and you don't even realize that they've been crossed and I think I think in in tennis also it's an interesting relationship with the fact that you know the coach is hired by the player and you know, it's potentially therefore in the best interests of the coach to get as close as possible to the player, you know, for potentially financial reasons or job security reasons. There's all sorts of dynamics here at play, which which lead to that being a potentially difficult relationship, which could lead to problems. You know, one of the biggest problems I see right now is the WTA tour. They don't even know from tournament to tournament who's coming into their world as part of a, their group of players who are entered in the tournament, their support team. They don't even have them registered. They don't, they don't, they don't know. So there has to be so much to make this workplace safe where anyone entering into the workplace, they need to know who they are. They need to know some sort of background check. Um, they need to know that they've received the education prior to entering the workplace. 
Um, it's just a lot. And it's not going to happen, you know, between now and the summer of 2022. But I really think it can be in place. They say this this major change was going to be in place by January of 2023. Well, I think they now know it's got a lot more layers and there's going to have to be a lot more to make the workplace safe. But, um, and, and the coaches have got to come, coaches and the team members above everybody else have to be willing to come to the table and be ready to be retrained and ready to accept that if they cross over that line, that they are violating the, the laws of tennis and they are becoming abusers. And to me, it becomes more and more simple and they have to just draw those clear lines in the sand that cannot be crossed going forward. I, I, I find that really, really interesting and on a number of levels. But one thing that I, I, mean, I keep wrestling with is whether it is, whether it is possible to have a relationship with somebody on the tour that is your coach and it to, to be healthy and successful. Because a lot of people meet their life partners in the workplace. They don't necessarily stop being colleagues within that workplace. And I'm just... I know it's different and I'm and I don't have the answer to it but I'm just trying to work it out as to as, because you're 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 making that categoric you're you're effectively mm -hmm. saying if your coach becomes your partner or it, or or it does cross that line then that person has to stop being your coach. Correct. That's actually what I am saying and that's in workplaces like I've worked for ESPN Disney now for over 30 years and the case they didn't have very strong workplace protocols when I started back in the early nineties, but they have developed extremely safe. So you cannot enter into a relationship with somebody you report to you until you fully disclose it. And the company has time to figure out what different divisions the the two people will now work. Like in other words, they're not going to, once it's disclosed, they're not going to allow that reporting uh, uh, relationship continue while there's a personal sexual relationship. And that is a healthier workplace when that happens. So, yes, I get it. But, um, I know it's um, maybe I'm dreaming to think there can be this firm of a workplace boundary setting to take place. But I I, I continue to dream dream big on this i think it can happen and i think for these young athletes needs to happen well it exists in it exists that categorically in teacher student scenarios doesn't it categorically no matter what the situation no matter what the defense is no matter how much both parties say they are in their right mind and consenting it is considered wrong end of story so that fr that that framework exists and that 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 you know that is i don't i don't hear much opposition to that in in the population you know it's pretty pretty much accepted as the way things should be so hopefully it's possible just just one final one for you pam just sort of going back a little bit to the the shift in perspective over time how um how would you have responded if those if those pathways if if something like matt described exist existing in um women's soccer um, in the States, if something like that 
had existed in the WTA and you had been reported and your invest your relationship had been investigated at the time how how would you have reacted how would you have felt wow going back to uh you know the early 80s how would i have felt i guess it would have felt really quite foreign to me i would have been on the one hand uh, scared but i think on the other hand eventually i would have felt great relief um, that somebody was coming to help me and try and help me kind of reset things that eventually five and a half years later I could reset. But I think it would have been a great thing. Good goodness me. I, I hope that, um, I hope that these things happen. I know they're not going to happen overnight, but, um, I really hope they happen. And it, you know, you, you sound, you sound even more clear and, confident about it all Pam than you did a few weeks ago when we spoke in Indian Wells it's it's incredible what you're doing and I really I think it's going to change things I really do um and hopefully this is just the start of a very important conversation which will which will keep evolving in tennis um we have other meaty tennis topics well world topics frankly to get into that that tennis is Tennis is embroiling itself in as tennis is as tennis is want to do, um, because as Pam mentioned, alluded to in our sort of plan, plans for releasing your story this week, Pam, it was rather torpedoed by Wimbledon uh, making a rather big announcement, one that was sort of has been whispered about for the last few weeks. I know Simon Briggs, the Telegraph, wrote a, a piece a couple of weeks ago hinting that, you know, it was some the, banning Russian and Belarusian players was something that Wimbledon were prepared to do. But I think the move of them actually doing it, followed up by the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association, the governing body of British tennis, saying that they would reflect that ban in all British tour-level tennis events as well. I think the strength of that and the timing of it somewhat took tennis by surprise, who would like to go first with their reaction to this incredibly nuanced and knotty issue of Russian and Belarusian players being banned from Wimbledon and from British events this summer? Oh, a, cl- a clamour of people wanting to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'll chime in first if you want. Um, I First off, obviously, uh, when the day... A couple hours later, after my story was released by the podcast and, and and the Telegraph, a couple hours later, it became official, right? So uh, the news kind of shifted, and but I was still wrapped in my coming out with my story. So it took me a few extra days to kind of soak it all up and kind of read a lot. I read a lot, and I, I know I posted on my Twitter story from Sally Jenkins, a sports writer. It's about my age, um, whose dad was legendary sports writer. So she's second generation. And her column in the Washington Post, I thought got it really right uh, once I read the entire article. Um, and, and that is that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't ask to be in a war. And the ones that you feel for most right now are the families, the children that are on the ground in Ukraine lives being torn apart, traumas being dealt out every single day that they may never recover from, even if they live through the war. So the fact that innocent people are affected by wars, guess what? That happens. 
So Sally's article kind of said, kind of put that in perspective, like, and, and also understanding that the way NATO, the way the powers of the world outside of Russia have decided to deal with it for now is by not doing business as much as possible with Russia and people who have businesses of who are Russian. So when you look at the sport of tennis, at the end of the day, tennis players are in the business of tennis. And so I think Wimbledon kind of looked at it and, and being a private club, they can look at it pretty simply than more so than maybe the other three majors who are owned by national federations. I think they looked at it pretty simply that they wanted to have their tournament be a part of not doing business. And hopefully by all of these sanctions, eventually it will get through without the escalation of a war that we haven't seen since World War II was over. So I think just like Wimbledon makes smart decisions other years, like who would have thought a pandemic insurance existed? Um, they make smart decisions. They don't make it in a vacuum. And I think their decision is correct. And I think that Sally Jenkins spelled it out beautifully. And that's my, I have adopted that position. It's, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, you know, Pam, I've been wrestling with it all week and actually before this because it was coming, you know, we'd been making jokes on the podcast about, you know, having to figure out how we feel about this incredibly knotty issue for a while and sort of knowing, knowing we'd have to figure that out and declare it at some point soon on the podcast. And when when I read that Sally Jenkins piece that you tweeted and that actually almost simultaneously my dad sent me. <laughs> sent me a link to as well I suddenly it was a it was a light bulb moment of um kind of summing up what I a lot of things that I'd felt in the pit of in the pit of my stomach about it in short you know it it being unfair doesn't make it wrong you know all the sanctions being imposed on Russia are impacting its citizens many of whom are blameless for the conflict other than holding holding a Russian passport and you know, the, the whole situation and in particular that article, it gave me flashbacks to my philosophy degree and, you know, the big question of whether a are the citizens of a state liable for what it does in their name, especially in a country that in no practical way is a democracy, which is I which is how I, I think of Russia. Um, and I think the answer is that it it has to be the the citizens have to be held responsible in an ideological sense not in it not on an individual le level i don't hold andrei rublev in any way responsible for what vladimir putin is doing but as a collective ideologically i think we have to and um a uh, an academic called anna stilts is quoted in that uh, in that sally jenkins piece an essay that she wrote titled collective responsibility in the state um and she says that if we end up unable to distribute state responsibility to the members of that state, then we're in danger of establishing perverse incentives. States become responsibility laundering machines in which citizens can just dissociate themselves from any sense of liability for the atrocities. Maintaining some sense of personal liability for states is what gives people the incentive to exercise their political will and limit the harm of a state through dissent and civil disobedience. And revolt this is me talking now revolt or uprising from the russian people from what i can gather from 
people that know about these things is one of the most plausible ways that this conflict comes to an end. And for me, that end justifies these means. These, This is a high-stakes situation and the means, as awfully unfair as it is to the Russian and Belarusian players, I really feel sympathy for them. I think they are collateral damage in a situation of immense collateral damage. And just, just one last thing before David and Matt, I'm desperate to get your views. Imagine, imagine that there was no ban and imagine Daniil Medvedev win, wins Wimbledon this year. Okay, it's, you know, it's not likely. I doubt anybody would have been picking him, but it's totally possible. And regardless of how he feels personally about the war, the images of him holding that trophy would be wielded by Putin as a weapon of war propaganda. They would be. He's got a history of that. He uses athletic achievements for for propaganda purposes. And frankly, that needs to not be possible. And again, the means of making that not possible justify the ends for me. I've gone back and forth over the last week over this issue. And I think... I probably speak for all of us to say that there is not an immediate take on this. As Pam said, it took her a while to arrive where she has arrived to. I think the same is true of Catherine. We're not we're not on one side where there isn't another side to consider here. This is the the most difficult view I've probably ever had to come to on the tennis podcast in 10 years as to as to what do I feel about this what do I feel is the right thing to do because I I genuinely see both sides to the point where I could land on one side or the other um in as much as let's look at some of the things that have been said here by Steve Simon a couple of days ago on our podcast interview and in the statement of the WTA and the ATP that they feel that this is discrimination against these individual athletes and that there is no room for discrimination in these sports strictly speaking it is discrimination you are you are stopping these athletes from playing the biggest tournaments in the world in the views of many simply because of where where they were born and the nationality they represent and it's not their fault they've done nothing individually to deserve that and it's quite interesting with the polls that I've seen from Chris Clary and Ben Rothenberg and myself, all people who work in tennis have said, is this the right decision or is it not? And around about 70% of people do not agree with this decision. But I think that those are tennis people. I don't know about nations generally. The reason I ran one after they ran one is because I think the view was, well, British people think that this is the right decision. So I thought as a British person, maybe I've got a more people from Britain following me. Let's see what they say. I think it's more tennis people that are thinking that this is appalling to to ban these individual athletes who've done nothing wrong. Um, Billie Jean King put out a statement saying she doesn't agree with it. Now, Billie Jean King, I I would imagine, is listening to this show right now and is is somebody we respect and listen to probably more than anybody in the tennis world. And yet here, here I am about to say that I think that that is not how I feel about it. Ultimately, I do agree with the 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 sentiment. I don't I, I don't feel comfortable with this in any way. I feel terrible for these players. 
that are being banned from playing Wimbledon. And I'm really worried about the fact that they, we don't know how many years this is going to last for. They may never play Wimbledon again, for all we know. And that feels terrible. But war is terrible to a degree many, 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 many times more than that. And this is the highest stakes war uh, of my lifetime. And, and, and it has the potential to be the highest stakes war ever. And and that has to take precedent over everything, ultimately, I think. Um, I, I think there's an interesting element to this that the LTA have gone with them on this. I think it's very interesting rules-wise because whereas Wimbledon is a private club and looking after one of the four biggest tournaments in the world and you get the feeling a bit like the French Open moving their dates, they can just frankly do what they like, get away with it, be Wimbledon, and everybody will still want to enter and everybody will still want to watch. Well, the LTA have done it with Queens and Eastbourne and Birmingham. Um, And those are tour events. They have sanctions that they've purchased on the tour in order to have ranking points and to be on the calendar. I wonder what's going to happen there because I think that the the tours sound absolutely steadfast in their view that this is not, and they could well have some pretty significant measures to 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 meet out to them. But ultimately, and it pains me to say it, I think Wimbledon are doing the right thing. It, more than not on, David, my understanding is that they're actually legally in breach by, by making that decision, you know, right or wrong. I, I, the impression I get um, is that the tours, if they wanted to, to really go for this issue, they would be on pretty strong ground legally against the LTA in their position. I, I think the Wimbledon situation is, is somewhat different. They have um, more leeway, as you said, Palmer, a... Um, an independent club and also not a tour, you know, it's, it's a grand slam event rather than a tour event. So how far they want to take it, you know, we we could enter a standoff here, hashtag tennis United. Um, How far the various parties want to take this is going to be very interesting. Just before I give my view generally, I just wanted to pick up on that point. And it is, I think, a problem here, tennis not acting in unison on this, because I do think Wimbledon's unilateral decision on this, as as right as it might be, has put the sport in a difficult place. Because if the ATP and the WTA are seen to sanction Wimbledon in some way by taking, a, by taking away ranking points, that is maybe symbolically more than anything, but symbolically it is moving against something which Wimbledon says is anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine. And that makes the move of the tours difficult. You know, that is them therefore taking an an opposite stance to that, which I think is putting them in, in quite a difficult place. It also means that absolutely Wimbledon is the the most prestigious tennis tournament in the world. And I completely agree that they are really trying to avoid the worst case scenario here of having a Russian or a Belarusian player win that title. But if Russians and Belarusians are still playing on the tour, they could win the French Open. They could win the US Open. They could, I mean, today, spoiler for the second bit of this podcast, you know, a Russian beat the world number one in a final. 
if that wanted to be used by the Russian regime, you know, holding Russia up in lights, using it for political gain, it still could be. And tennis still would be being kind of manipulated in that way. And I, I don't think that's good for the sport to be in this position where there is um, so much disagreement. Um, in terms of my take generally, I, I, I genuinely, and I'm, I'm really not just saying this, I genuinely haven't come down on either side. I I have read saying that Wimbledon is right, saying that Wimbledon is wrong. And I, I don't have a strong opinion either way. And I don't mean that, that I don't care. I, it's quite the opposite. You know, I've gone back and forth on it. I'm very, very torn on it. And I absolutely agree with all the points you've made in favour of um, why this is maybe not fair, but ultimately the right decision. I think you've all said it very, very well. I, I just wanted to present the other side, just just so that we have, I think, on this on this podcast. I think because, as you said, a lot of people do disagree with this, and some of the strongest arguments against it for me. Um, number one is that it's maybe not an extension of the sanctions that are already in place, because sanctioning a state, which then has consequences for its individual citizens is not the same as directly sanctioning the athletes themselves. It's more targeted uh, rather than having them as collateral damage. And I think that was quite a persuasive argument for me. Um, Also, the fact that this could be used by Putin to present um, the idea of anti-Russian sentiment in the West. Uh, He might use it as kind of propaganda in the Russian state media to you know and create more of an us versus them than there already is I think that's quite a persuasive argument Um, there's the slippery slope argument about what sort of precedent this sets and why uh, has this not been applied to other nations in the past necessarily you know Wimbledon describes this as unprecedented military aggression and look it is horrific what is happening in Ukraine um but it's also absolutely horrific what China's doing in Xinjiang at the moment. And um, and, and I really don't want to do sort of whataboutery here, but I think, you know, it's important to ask why we haven't applied this in the past. You know, a lot of people have brought up the US and the UK's involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. And I want to get into all that, but I think these are important, important questions as well. Um, and then this big, big question of whether citizens should be held responsible for the actions of the state. Catherine, I know you laid out the case there and I've read that piece that was cited in the Washington Post article. I've I've read a counterpiece um, by Avia Pasternak, um, who for her, it depends on the, on, on the type of regime. And in an authoritarian regime, she thinks, she thinks you can't hold individual citizens responsible. Um, due to the extraordinary levels of brainwashing that goes on, due to, due to the political repression. She says that when an international community imposes sanctions and compensation schemes on such states, it is unjustly saddling their ordinary citizens. And it's precisely in those cases that more careful and nuanced models of responsibility attribution should be found, ones that pierce the veil of the state and go after those who do share the blame for the state's wrongdoing. And I think there'd be a lot of people that would that would agree with that as well. So 
as I'm saying, I honestly haven't come down one way or the other. It's it's an incredibly difficult issue. Um, I think a lot of the Ukrainian players were suggesting that an alternative might be to ask Russian and Belarusian players to sign a form or to publicly state their position. I personally didn't think that would work. Um, you would then be you'd be introducing something in tennis that could put individual athletes in danger. You know, Russia has signed laws that for anyone who speaks out against Putin, they could be they could be punished. Or if not the individuals, then certainly their families as well. So I I actually think a, a ban is probably I don't want to use the word better, but I can't think of another word at the moment, but is better than that. Um but of course everything is is deeply unsatisfactory either way. It's a very, very horrible situation and I honestly haven't come down on either side. But I just wanted to present the the alternative viewpoint there. That's always felt like a red herring to me, the the suggestion that a way to circumvent the ban might be to to for the for individual players to sign some sort of anti war, anti Putin declaration, because that wouldn't be reported in in Russia. Um, or if it if it were, it would be you know reported in a non factual, twisted, twisted way. So I, I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm, I'm glad that hasn't been a feature of the of the decision that that's been that's been made because that's always felt like it's missed the point somewhat to me. Um, of course, Matt, I found all of those arguments incredibly persuasive, <laughs> and I'm now sort of shaking in my. <laughs> in my already shaky conviction in how I feel. But I, do, I think I think I still do remain fifty one forty nine. but my goodness me, what a what a tricky one. And also ha- having said that, having declared how I feel and and standing by that, I also think it's probably the right thing for the WTA and the ATP to be contesting it because that well, yeah. is their role. Member organisations. To, def- to defend their players. Um so, and the point you make, Matt, about that putting them um, optically and in reality in a, in a very difficult position is is a really interesting one because I I think they should have the the right to mm. to defend their players and fight for them regardless of of the rights and wrongs of of the ban here and yeah optically that could be oh my goodness me it could get messy. Couldn't it? I'll say it again, folks. Hashtag Tennis United. Well, what about Andre Rublev's proposal? Let let us play, but we'll give all the prize money to Ukrainian victims of this of this war. I think it's lovely, but I don't think it. I don't think it solves any of the actual issues at hand. This is. This is largely ideological. Uh, like, largely ideological. Um, you know, I'm trying to think about how tennis players could lead something of significance in their home country. Because let's face it, there's some really influential athletes here. Um, first of all, you'd have to make sure all your family members were out and safe, right? I mean, this is so complex, and we don't even know whether or not any of these influential athletes are in that position where they have who they need out. But you just wonder whether or not, when you think about the history of people getting a groundswell of support and being able to get that, get that uh, protesting, get the 
get the groundswell happening. Is it impossible? Could, I don't know. I look at some of the great people in tennis of, you know, whether it's Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King, Althea Gibson, look at some of the great things they were able to do. This would probably be the most significant, but I wish a couple of them could think together, like how can we get the groundswell? How can we start to get um, society in Russia to just overthrow? <laughs> it sounds so simple, but I'm just like, so Rublev, I don't, I can't accept that that's acceptable at this point, given what's going on, but take your energy, take your, and, and think about how you can take your influence and maybe start a groundswell. Who would want to be a tennis administrator? Yeah, lots of shaking heads, folks. Can it's, we um... can we just mention the irony that uh, the ATP and WTA launched their new Tennis United uh, Live Scores app <laughs> on the day that this uh, was announced? Yeah. And if we knew it was coming... And we did. OK, we didn't, you know, have loads of notice, but we knew what a couple of days before that Wimbledon were planning to do this announcement. They must have known it was coming. <laughs> they just thought, guys, we cannot possibly delay this app launch another day. It has to be now. Let's do it. I'm very pleased the app exists, by the way. Um, but it is it's all it's a moment of levity in a sea of um What's the word? There are probably many words, but um, all of them a bit too depressing. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about tennis now for a bit. Pam wants to exit the fray because she wants to be able to listen to the second portion of the podcast as a <laughs> as a fan and a listener, which is lovely, Pam. And as I say goodbye, I just want to thank you three, as well as uh, the fifth member of the team of sort of Pam's podcast and the story team, Simon, who's not here. I just want to thank you guys for your support and helping me tell my story. Thank you. Oh, Pam, I'm going to speak for everyone here and say we owe you the thanks. Honestly, it's uh, it's incredible what you've done and we are honoured um, that you've chosen here is, is the place to do it. So thank you very much. And thank you for um, bringing your views on Russia as well, because that's not an easy thing to put your hand up to talk about either. So... So thank you, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. And please keep the WhatsApp group alive. All right, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> bye bye. We'll, we'll see thank you soon. You, thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. 
That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So, folks, now we're going to have the novelty experience of talking about tennis. Now, between the three of us, we think we might just have been able to watch enough tennis from the week to be able to tell you what happened and to give our takes on it. But they don't half blooming make it hard for us, David. Oh, well, I was at a point today because of the rain delay in Barcelona and everything starting so early there. There were four massive matches in four different locations, three finals, one semi-final, literally all going on at the same time. Um, and like Billie Jean, I was fuming um, about the, because I, I only had the one. I mean, people say, oh, we'll watch on multiple screens. Well, at that particular point, my son was watching highlights of Match of the Day. Uh, my wife was watching something else. So I'd got the one iPad. And I could only watch one of them at any one given time. Um, and so I was, tr- I was actually waiting for the sit-down during the Alcaraz match to go and watch some of the Sviantec against Sabalenka match whilst I was having to miss the Istanbul final completely. So it's, it's, all, it's all pretty disappointing in that way. But the actual tennis that was played and the stories that came out of it all were, were really interesting. So th- there is plenty to get into. Yeah, I'm going to take a leap here and say that in the circumstances, uh, none of us watched the Istanbul final. Matt, speak now if you managed to watch that, but I don't think any of us did. So I'm just going to tell you uh, that it was won by Anna Potapova. She beat Veronika Kudamatova uh, in two straight sets in that all-Russian final. Two blank flags next to those players' names. Um, Big win, actually, for Potapova, who was... Um, she was a really good junior, wasn't she? I think a junior number one or certainly a junior Wimbledon champion. And, you know, she's been slowly creeping up, but she's not had any big moments where she's brought her, uh, herself to our attention on the senior stage. So that's uh, that's pretty big for her. Um, we don't need to go into the whole Russian thing. I think we've, you know, covered that in detail. But Potapova, one of two Russian winners today because we also had Andrei Rublev beating world number one Novak Djokovic in three sets in the Belgrade final. A lot of this match was thrilling. Such a great contest. The second set won by Djokovic on a tie break was was brilliant. And it's I know after what we saw in the match between Djokovic and um, Alejandro Davidovic-Fakina, it, it should be believable that Djokovic faded like he did and lost the third set six love and yet it still didn't seem plausible to me that after winning that second set tie break that what ensued would ensue it was I know he's reached a final and this is it's a big step forward in his comeback no doubt he fought through some great matches this week Djokovic but I still find it alarming the steepness of the drop-off 
um, in these deciding sets. And he won some three setters this week. This isn't just about, you know, he just doesn't have the energy to go three sets. But it's really, really jarring to see that happen to, to Novak Djokovic, as brilliant as Rublev was today. Yeah, and I think, as you said, he has made progress because in Monte Carlo, the physical drop-off happened after one match. And here he had three other matches in the tank where he'd come back from a set down in all of them. But then it was exactly the same. And what it means, I think, is that there's a lot of progress to make. Let's be honest, let's cut to the chase here for Roland Garros. That is that is his big goal over the next uh, few weeks on the clay. And he's got to get to the stage where he can play seven five-set matches in 14 or 15 days. That's a big progression still that needs to happen for Djokovic and he's talked about having a virus hasn't he in 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 the last couple of weeks which I think has maybe set him back a little bit more but he he's concerned about it He, he said again look I know I've had a virus but I need to speak to my team because this isn't this isn't normal what has happened to me um it's it's making him uncomfortable and when Djokovic is uncomfortable he 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 displays that and it and it really sort of affects his uh kind of personality on the court and and it and it means that not only is he physically compromised but sort of mentally a little bit as well so it's a really it's a difficult time for Djokovic even though he made some progress and I thought the tennis he played uh, against Ketsmanovic down the stretch and against Karen Hatchinov uh in 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 his penultimate match I thought the tennis was kind of was kind of really there. It was really good from him. He, he found a higher level sooner than I would have expected. But the but the physical issue is is kind of the main thing and the main worry I think for Djokovic. Yeah, I, th- I think ultimately the fact that he had those matches against uh, Ketsmanovic and Hachinov and both involved coming back from a set down to win and they they're often these matches were back to back days and and then the same thing happened in in this final set down wins an absolute grueling epic of a second set, all the emotion that goes with playing in Belgrade. Ultimately, I think my conclusion is maybe it's not that surprising given where he is in his season, given what's happened to date and how little tennis he's had, how unmatch-ready his body probably is, and indeed his psyche probably is. It's Probably my ultimate conclusion is it's not that surprising. And yet, I share your view, Catherine. It's still jarring. And there's still a bit of a question mark in my mind as to whether this is more than just the inevitable building blocks of an athlete trying to peak in a few weeks' time when when he's not had much tennis. Is that virus more of a problem than we thought? Is maybe some some remnants of, of his COVID causing problem? We know he's, he's had, had the infection... And, um, earlier on this year who who knows you know uh, uh, we've seen enough people who have struggled with it or is he getting old is he is he not as good as he used to be all these question marks are still in my mind because he's just lost a six love set i i watched him win that second set went to see my parents and expected to be back 20 minutes later at two games all in the third and it was over so that's not what I expect with Novak Djokovic playing playing a big final in Belgrade. But ultimately, I, I think that this is probably quite a natural conclusion of everything he's had so far this year. 
There's also the issue of the fact he's starting matches badly. You know, he's lost the opening set of every match he's played uh, since he came back on the clay, going back to the Davidovich Fakina one, and then every match uh, this week in Belgrade. And it does feel like the aura of, of, of invincibility has been chipped away at a little bit. I think I think players are stepping onto court with a little bit more belief from the start that they can trouble Djokovic and maybe I'm maybe that's a stretch because there were a lot of scenarios last year where he lost the opening set in slams I think maybe 10 times and he won he went on to win every single match it it wasn't an issue for him and of course he's won several matches this week as well having lost the first set but I don't know there's just something about maybe having seen seen what's happened to Djokovic in, in the last few months that Maybe a little bit of that aura has has gone, and players players are stepping on with more belief and causing him problems straight away. And that's look, it may end here, but it's certainly something that I'm interested in sort of checking out the pattern of over the next few weeks to see whether it whether it you know keeps happening because there is only so many times you can keep coming back from one set down. And had he not lost the opening set in all of those matches, he might have had more in the tank for Rublev today and. And won the match, so there is a knock-on effect as well. I think that was uh, Andre Rublev's first ever win over a world number one. Um, I thought he was very impressive to deal. I mean, the same goes for Irina Sabalenka, who we'll we'll talk about in due course in from the Stuttgart final to deal with. You know what they've been dealing with this week following Wimbledon's announcement, and Andre Rublev put out you know extremely thoughtful. Um, lengthy, heartfelt statement about it, didn't he? We we touched upon that with Pam. Incredibly impressive uh, from him to deal with that and beat Djokovic to win the title. Is he, you can see where I'm going with this, folks, in the Roland Garros mix? No. Given given the the vacuum <laughs> at the top of the game, you know, the, the relative vacuum, I'm not, I'm absolutely not, absolutely not, don't come for me. I'm not writing off Djokovic at Roland Garros. But relatively speaking to how men's tennis has looked for the last couple of decades, there is this strange vac- vacuum at the moment at the top of the game. Medvedev's out at the moment. Even if he were in, he's not in the French Open mix, really, is he, realistically? He certainly wouldn't put himself in the mix. So is Rublev in there? Or is it, is it, David, a mix of one? No, it's not a mix of one. Uh, even though I think that uh, Mr. Alcaraz is going to win the French Open. I've been saying it for months. Um, but I feel like Rublev should be in the mix, but he's not in mine. He, I don't think he's going to win it. I'd be so I'd be massively surprised if he won it because I still think he has this this top level and then he puts his foot to the floor and tries to press it down even more. Because it, he needs a bit more, and there's nothing else. There's nowhere else to go. Um, and I mean, he still. He st- I think today was quite a triumph in, in as much as I mean, he makes me really uncomfortable watching him. Uh, he he won the first set six two today, and then he uh, David lost. David has a David has a real emotional journey with um, with Riblev matches that he. he yeah, I mean, I know what you mean, but it doesn't it doesn't get to me the way it does. Oh, it to exhausts you. me. It exhausts me. It makes <laughs> me really uncomfortable watching him, and and my daughter as well. She was watching. He'd won the he'd, he'd won the first set six two against Novak Djokovic. He loses two points, and he's he looks like he wants to just 
go nuts at anybody about he can't handle it. He cannot handle the fact that he's just lost two points. And then the racket goes. And then he's looking over at his coach as though the coach has just committed some mortal offence over the course of those two points. And the whole experience, he looks like he's having the worst time and as, as though he needs to be just sent somewhere quiet to just sit on his own until he's calmed down. And and I, I watch that and I think, oh, this is deeply unsettling to me, the the state he gets himself into. It's a temper tantrum. Uh, and I don't like it. It just I don't enjoy watching those moments. And you, but the reason I view it as a triumph is because he still managed to play. He didn't like go off the rails when he when he when he lost his temper. He got himself back and he beats Novak Djokovic. But I still don't see him in the mix. I don't. No chance. No, nor do I. I'm just being. I'm just. I'm just being annoying by asking the question. <laughs> I'm just going to lay it out once and for all. It's a mix of four. It's Nadal. It's Djokovic. It's Alcaraz, and it's Sitsipas. Yeah, I agree with that, David. Yeah. Who's the favourite of those? Nadal. D- David's having a hover. He's thinking <laughs> well, no, about I mean, it, Matt. He's no, thinking no, about it. Nadal should be the favourite. I mean, of course, he is the favourite. Nadal is in the favourite. In any logical world, he is the favourite, but he also He's hasn't played it, Matt. in about six <laughs> weeks. And I'm picking Alcaraz to win the title. That's is the he the, the favourite, yeah. though? Did you see the Australian Open, David? Yeah, and I'm picking Alcaraz to win the franchise. Yeah, yeah, you can pick that, but Nadal is the favourite. I'm not saying he's the favourite on the bookmakers okay. or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but I'm not wavering in any way. No, I'm, that's I, fair. I, I, I respect that. I feel more that. strongly about it. <laughs> because of what happened today slash this because whole week. Because of what's week. happened today. the last month. Okay, well, let's deal with today. <laughs> Slash the past week, uh, Carlos Alcaraz has won his third title of the year. He's just, he, I mean, he's just sweeping all before him, isn't he? Today, he beat Alex de Menor, 6-4 in the third, saving two match points, three hours, 37 minutes. And then he comes back later on in the day and just brushes aside Pablo Carreño Bustos, 6-3, 6-2. Carreño Buster had also played his semi-final earlier on today, but had a far easier ride of it, 3-4 and four in an hour and 35 over Schwartzman. I mean, I think what we've learnt there is that youth is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it was hilarious. Well, I mean, Dimonor played really well. He, he'd... It was very interesting watching somebody who could move with Alcaraz at Alcaraz's speed. Because most Who's of faster? the time, oh, who would I, win I, I a really sprint don't race? Know. You know, I, I, I could. I think you could make a. You could back either one and not be sure. I, I can't. I don't know. But I mean, I expect. I still expected Alcaraz to win, even though he was two match points down. And actually, the first of the two match points was was Dimonor coming in on what looked like a forehand put away down the line, which Alcaraz got a little bit lucky to in that he was running that way already. But he overran the ball and had to step around it and play this improvised sort of faded forehand around um, around Dimonor to to very clever improvisation because it wasn't a ripped forehand; it was just guided in order to to put himself in with a chance of winning the point and he won that point but yeah Dimonor is is so fast and he was so dogged out there today he just wouldn't let go mentally in the whole match stayed with him 
And Alcaraz wasn't playing that well. And there have been points of this week where he hasn't played that well. And yet he's won the tournament. He's won Barcelona where all these great players and proper clay courts are playing. He beat Sitsipas. And again, he had some wobbles in that match against Sitsipas, despite probably putting together four or five games in a row, the likes of which I don't think I've seen anybody other than Nadal. There have been spells where Nadal has played tennis that make you gasp and that's what Alcaraz did in that match but I don't know he just I just think the thing is Alcaraz is learning all the time how to be a tennis player he's Mm. so raw he's so good and he's so advanced in not only his physicality but also his his match understanding and yet I I feel like we're only scratching the surface yeah in um in our in our Kirio Not This Again chat, which is it's, it's, it's current. Isn't it Kiri on the plane home oh, at yes. the moment? Kiri on the plane home, <laughs> yeah. They're both very appropriate. Um, uh, my brother uh, disclosed that um, his girlfriend Millie's uh, analogy for, for Carlos Alcaraz, and I'm telling you, they tune in to every Carlos Alcaraz match, every minute of it. They, I mean, they just don't, they don't miss it. That it's, the chat's you know, going to get renamed. Can't believe your eyes Carlos stuff. Yeah, he's he's itching to do it. Anyway, Millie's analogy was that it's like the early stages of a new superhero franchise. You know, and they're they're telling the origin story, and you're seeing the the portion of the narrative arc where the superhero is discovering their powers for the first time. That's what it's like with Alcaraz, isn't it? It's you know he tries something and then he goes, "All oh, right, yeah, I can, I can do that as well." <laughs> Pop. Pop that on the list. <laughs> it's he's he's ridiculous. Yeah, he is. He is, and I think I think Clay actually. It's been interesting to see him on the clay, which we've thought of all the time as his best surface. You know, that was the surface he he broke through on. That was when we first saw him on the pro tour in Rio. You know. David went big that he would win the French Open. It felt like the French Open and clay would be Alcaraz's thing. And yet he's been so good on hard courts over the start of this year. I've started to wonder whether actually maybe he's better on on a hard court at this stage in his career. He's got such power, Alcaraz, and it's one of his great strengths, of course, but he wants to use that power all the time. And I think getting that balance right of using it versus staying in rallies and not making errors is a challenge for him on clay. He's he's passing it because, as you said, he won the title without necessarily playing his best. And there were moments where he got that balance perfectly right. But I did think at times, oh, he's pulling the trigger a little bit early or he's he's going for a bit too much there. But as you said, he's learning before our eyes. He's getting better, better at it. And yeah, he's he's probably got enough time before the French Open to get it completely sorted out. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing watching Alcaraz at the moment. So Alcaraz is a champion in Barcelona. He'll, I hope, have a week off. He can't be playing this week, can he? Have a week off, head to Madrid, where we're expecting to see Nadal back. So just gonna just gonna leave that there and let let everyone sit with that. Um, now, while Alcaraz was winning one of his two matches of the day today, uh, there was a final going on in Stuttgart, and Iga Svantec was, surprise, surprise, folks, winning it. Um, because she doesn't lose anything, ever. 
Um, she beat uh, Arena Sabalenka in two straight sets in the final. Two and two it was, but it, it was a, f- a far closer match than that. Sabalenka, well, actually, no. Maybe it wasn't a far closer match than that. What I mean to say is Sabalenka did not play badly. I don't know what you do against, against Fiontek at the moment. I really don't. She is so confident that she's... I mean, it is impossible to push her back from the the baseline. She's happy. She's happy to half volley from there, and she's just seeing it like seeing the ball like a football, ninety nine percent of the time. And she's she's going for all the shots that you only dream about doing, and you usually hold yourself back from going for because if it doesn't work, you'll look silly. But it's always working. Um, yeah, you know, I think the only risk for Iga Schwantek is that she could be peaking too soon. But I don't know. She keeps it's a it's a snowball, isn't it? The confidence keeps accumulating. I, I'm only saying that to be devil's advocate. I mean, it's it's so hard to to see her losing when it matters. I suppose I could see her, you know, running out of steam a bit and suffering a suffering a loss at one of these warm up tournaments. But just she. She just looks so head and shoulders above everybody else at the moment. And I wish we would be getting to talk about the possibility of her playing Ash Barty right now. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, I've saw two matches of hers this week. And on the whole, I agree with you. I saw her play Emma Raducanu, who played very well in a 6-4-6-4 defeat. And I thought, yeah, I thought Sabalenka had moments today. She tried to play it like a hardcore indoor match. And I actually love the Stuttgart indoor clay event. It's the only indoor clay event we get to see. And I actually think it makes her a really good spectacle without the elements for an event of wind and so forth. And, and yet you've got clay and it was, it was a, it's a wonderful event Stuttgart as well. Um, should say though, semi-final, Shvantec almost lost. And it was uh, Ludmilla Samsonova, wasn't it? Who had her on the rails and it was five all, I think in, in that third set. And, uh, and it was really close. Now I didn't get to see that match and I'd like, it's, it's a match I intend to go back and watch because I'm curious now, you know, we've seen now, what is it? 23 match wins in a row for Shvantec. And I think she's only lost one, maybe two sets in that whole run. I mean, that's an extraordinary uh, run of, of sets in a row. I know she'd won over, She'd won 28 sets in a row, I think, at one stage I saw. Um, so I'm curious to see what Sam Sonova did to to, to cause her issues. And I, when I watch Svantec play at the moment, she gives me a very similar vibe to what Barty was giving in Australia. That She's got the final answers in all the important rallies. You can do all sorts of extraordinary things, but she'll still come up with an answer because she's that good. She's that good at handling pace. She's that good on the defense. She's got so many angles to throw at you. She does look nigh on unstoppable when she's playing well at the moment. But seen enough tournaments where Thomas Muster was on a goodness knows how many match wins in a row, won seven tournaments in a row coming up to the French Open and then lost to Michael Stick in the in the nineteen ninety five French Open quarterfinals. These things happen. And so whilst I think she's a heavy favourite at the moment, I, I love that there are that many good players in women's tennis that somebody else is going to peak at some point and then will Svantec be able to go with it that that's going to happen at some point 
really glad I picked this week to have a, a week off from um, going for Badossa in the predictions. <laughs> Although, to be honest, any of the other weeks I predicted she'd win and she didn't would have also Who been did you good go for? to have a week off. I went for Rublev. Oh, Yay. <laughs> David, David's had a rough time with Kasparud this I week. I had Kasparud who had uh, three match points against uh, Pablo Corina Buster, who, by the way, got to the final today having beaten Diego Schwarzman. Did very, very well. I'm really pleased for you. Corona Buster, he went and beat Kasparud. Well, I've said this before, but I cannot get over how seamlessly Sviantek has stepped into this number one role and just started yeah. doing number one things. I mean, she's even winning. Mm. She's even winning the titles that Barty won last year in Miami and in Stuttgart. There's, there's just something perfect about the way Sviantek is is doing what she's doing at the moment because it very easily could not have been like this. It very easily could have been a void and just, we didn't know who the number one was and there was no dominant player. Um, And, you know, even, even making the transition from hard court to clay court, that's a Barty thing. That's something we spoke about a lot with how good she was on, on every surface. And Sviantek can do that as well. And she didn't have much time. Because she played uh, Billie Jean King Cup last week, that was still on a hard court indoors. She then comes over to the clay. I think I think she said something like she surprised herself how quickly she made that transition this week. And I agree with you. I, I could see her losing before Roland Garros. I suppose just just this sort of sheer thought of oh. Well, Surely she can't keep this up. Surely someone is going to maybe peak against her at one point. But this record in big matches, in most important matches, in finals, that has been built up now over a, over a long, long time. That is how Sviantek plays in finals. She plays her best tennis. And at the moment, it's better than anyone's. And it's very difficult to imagine her not winning one of these finals at the moment because she just, she just produces. And it's, it's, it's scary good. There's, um, there's no WTA event this week because WTA Madrid starts on Thursday and the the men ATP start on Saturday so that's going to be lovely and complicated to try and keep up with what stage of the tournament we're at great thank you tennis it also it also means that there's no WTA event this week whereas I think there are two on the men's tour I just and yeah. it also means, can I have a moan? Can I have a moan about yes, this? Yes, please. Yeah. Okay, it also means, because I remember this from Madrid last year, that the women start and they get two or three days to themselves and their sort of first, second round matches. Then the men come in. And what it means is that when the women's tournament gets to a really exciting stage, those matches are uh, diluted with men's matches as well on the same order of play. But by the time the men get to their really important stage of the tournament, the women's event's pretty much finished and the men's most important matches at the end of Madrid just get the order of play to themselves. And it makes it extremely complicated to follow. Why they can't just go in sync, I have absolutely no idea. But Madrid last year was a was a tough watch from a sort of organisation perspective and it sounds like they're doing exactly the same thing again. Really excited about spending the next two weeks getting angry about that, Matt. <laughs> Thank you for the refresher. Um, let's all take a moment, though, to be glad that it's a tennis tournament and not an esports tournament. 
Um, <laughs> hashtag never forget. Two years ago. Who won? <laughs> Mary won. <laughs> Did he? Two years ago, Was it Mary? No. Was it Kiki Burton's? The Madrid Open was <laughs> an e-sports event. Was it David Goffin? No, it was Murray. Andy, I'm sure it was Andy Murray. Andy Murray was definitely in the final. I think, I think Murray won it. Right. Well, he could do it again, but in, in tennis terms, because he's he's taken a wild card into the Madrid Open, having said that he was going to skip the whole clay court season. Uh, he's now decided that he couldn't darn help himself, David. And Will off he to play Madrid, the he French goes. Open, do we think? Funny old warm up for the grass, isn't it? <laughs> he he said in his statement, or you know, the, the the briefing from his people that he wanted some top level opposition. Too long, too long. That in discussion with Ivan, too long to go without you know match practice. I do think that's a fair point, actually. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see why you would want to play. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> he knows better than me. Oh, well, anyway, done, he, can, I'm done trying he can to understand. He can carry it. the confidence and the good memories of winning the Madrid Open two years ago, uh, albeit in esports. He can carry that into into this year on a console. Mm. Can I just say I have looked it up, and this is this is a double that isn't talked about enough. Kiki Burton's won Madrid 2019 and then defended her title on esports in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't we mention that when we covered her retirement? <laughs> That's unreal. Did she beat Did she beat Andy Murray in the final twenty twenty? No, I th- I think they had separate men's they'd, and women's. They had separate, so who won the men's? I'm pretty sure it was Murray. I haven't looked that Are up. Are we doing I'm... tennis relived for Madrid esports twenty twenty? I'm pretty sure we promised to never speak of it again. But here we are. I um... really, really need to know who won now and who he beat in the final. Um, yes, Mary won. Was it Goffin? It was Goffin, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good memory, Catherine. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> it's it's burned on my brain. Um, it makes me laugh that we're, we're, we're chatting esports and all of us forgot to say that Carlos Alcaraz is a top 10 player tomorrow. Thanks, David, for just trashing <laughs> my hosting capabilities. That was lovely. I mean, it doesn't... That doesn't feel notable for me because like, he sort of obviously already is and it's just, I don't know. I mean, obvi- you know, obviously. Also, yeah. I'm annoyed with you for throwing me under the bus. <laughs> um, so, Murray will be playing Madrid. Um, just on that, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I, I got waylaid talking about esports. I, I was really excited for Murray to have a proper break. And come back for the grass. And look, I absolutely agree. He knows best. I'm sure he's had a long, hard think about it and has come to the conclusion that he needs matches and competitive matches. Or Lendl has, but together. But there was something I really liked about the idea of a break and then coming in fresh for the grass. And look, he might still be fresh. He might not win many matches in, in Madrid and Rome. But I don't know. I was excited about the clean break and the restart. Mm. He just couldn't help himself, though, could he? Mm. Anyway, it'll be an added uh, added level of intrigue, won't oh, it? Oh, totally. Tournament. So um, looking forward to it. Starts on Thursday slash Saturday. Um, in other tennis news <laughs> from the week, Milos Raonic has got married. Uh, if you want to see a weird wedding photo, head to Milos Raonic's social media. 
Uh, it looks like he's never met his wife before. Um, but there is a lovely dog just in the corner of the photo, which salvages the whole thing. Um, Maria Sharapova's having a baby. Lovely. Congratulations, Maria. Um, any other births, deaths, marriages to report? I think the aforementioned Kiki Burton's. Uh, it's had is... a baby. Yes. Not as big a triumph as defending her title in Madrid (laughs) in 2020, but congratulations, Kiki, and belated congratulations for that extraordinary feat. Uh, Anything else, folks? I I have a a weird bit of any other business. I I was perplexed as to why the second court in Barcelona was called the Pista Jan Kodesh. Um, Oh, yes. Because... You know, I didn't associate Jan Kodesh with Barcelona particularly. He did win that title. And it turns out what they're doing is every year they're changing the name of the second court to honour a former champion. And, of course, you may think, well, the main court is already named after Rafael Nadal. So I do wonder whether we're going to get to 2048 or whatever it is. And uh, the main court and and the second court will be the Pista Rafael Nadal, maybe. Or they'll just have to skip like 12 years and (laughs) skip straight to (laughs) Kane Shikori. (laughs) Did Kane Shikori win it? He he won it. He defended his title in Barcelona. No chance, really. He did. Mm. He did. That's a good... uh, Todd Martin won it the one year. Oh, brilliant. So we're going to get the Pista Todd Martin. Anyone anyone else? (laughs) David from the 90s? Didn't Milos Raonic win it one year? We'll get to the final. No. Don't think so. I mean... (laughs) No, I'm just going to say no, that didn't happen. (laughs) Anyway, many congratulations, Milos, on your nuptials. Uh, I think that's it, folks, for today's Bumper Tennis Podcast. Thank you for getting this far, if you have. Um, important stuff to cover this week, so we've uh, we've let ourselves waffle on for a little bit longer than usual. So, um, yeah, hope you've enjoyed it. We have mascots and I'm using the plural deliberately because we have Bailey and we have Maddie, owned by Paula Ann Czech. Ketch? Czech, One I of think. those two things. Czech, lovely. Paula Ann Czech. Um, and Bailey is a female Chinese crested powder puff mixed with a Yorkie. Uh, and Maddie, or Madison, is a 15 year old male miniature poodle with Dumbo ears. Uh, and he really does have Dumbo ears. And, of course, Billie Jean, uh, who you've heard a lot throughout the course of this podcast because she's been annoying, uh, is also half miniature poodle. So we like Maddie very much. And also, we I very much like Bailey. A Chinese crested, I didn't know they were powder puffs, but a Chinese crested is one of those dogs that's actually really cute. But when you see them on crufts, they've they've always got a weird haircut that makes them a lot less cute. But in the wild, they're delightful. Um, So thank you to lovely Bailey and lovely Maddie for being our mascots this week. Uh, We have our mascots. I've got Carter, David's got Darwin, Matt's got Gerald the cat. Both uh, myself and Matt, Carter and Gerald scored this week. David was let down by Casper Rude. Sorry, Darwin. Uh, Billie Jean, who's not covered herself in glory in this week's recording. She's sponsored by Billie Jean King and Ilana Kloss. We have our executive producers, Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner, both of them top blokes. And we have shout outs, Matt. We have Karen Maybom from Lausanne in Switzerland. 
Oh, another another Swiss one. Yes, had a few of those. Yes, are we confident about the pronunciation of Lausanne? Yes, I think so. I think that might be the French part, French-speaking part. Karen, did you say? Karen Maybom, and I'm not sure about that. Thank you very much for your support, Karen, and for being one of our apparently many Swiss listeners. We also have Stephen Malloy from County Clare in Ireland, and uh, Stephen's regularly in touch. Yes. Stephen, one of my favourite Twitter contributors who often replies to things we put out with better replies than the original tweet. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll forgive him for that um, because he's very entertaining. And uh, yeah, top bloke. Can I top use that? Top bloke, Stephen. Or, yeah. or, or only executive producers get called top bloke. Medium bloke. Thank you very much, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, we have Elizabeth Jones from Boston. And Elizabeth is a huge Andy Murray fan. She lived in London during his peak years. So she went to watch him at Queen's, at the ATP Finals, at Wimbledon, even the Davis Cup. And she moved back to the US in 2017. And she's worried that she jinxed Andy Murray by doing so. Well, maybe she did. Listen, (laughs) maybe... That, that evidence is strong. Um, Elizabeth, I hope you're looking forward to Madrid. Big, yeah. Yep, yep. Thank you very much for your support. Uh, uh, I've I've been to Boston. I liked it very much. Yes, me too. It was great. Mm. We should wrap up now because Billie Jean's noises are getting extremely distracting, aren't they? <laughs> She's gnawing the, the microphone wire yeah. as we speak, folks. Yeah, it's be- it's becoming a bit of a high wire act. Can I just say, David, I'm pretty sure you spent a couple of minutes researching whether Milos Raonic won Barcelona. Can you? Yes, I did. He didn't, did he? No, but he got to two consecutive semifinals in 2012 and 2013, (laughs) and he beat the aforementioned Andy Murray on clay. Thank you very much. Wow. What a note to end on, (laughs) folks. Uh, Milos Raonic's illustrious clay court career in Barcelona... Um, that's it folks I'm really sorry about what Billie Jean said to say uh, at various points during this recording thanks for listening Um, I'm sure lots of you will be in touch about the various issues we've covered this week it's important stuff and um, we hope we've done the issues justice and thanks once again to Pam Shriver for telling her story and for opening such a vital conversation we'll be back next week with another tennis podcast when there'll have been a couple of days of men's madrid and several more days of women's madrid and i'm sure there'll be some sort of rant for you to look forward to so thanks for listening and we'll speak to you then a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.